Um, I want to thank SFG TV, who's doing the recording today, and um, to remind everyone who, if you are speaking, to please use the mics. Even if you think you can be heard, it helps with the recording. So thank you. Sean? Good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to start by thanking you all for coming, uh, despite this being a rather significant municipal holiday. Uh, I think the fates are with us and are delaying the start time of opening day, so thank you for those of you who might be trying to do both. Um, in the uh, four or five months that I've been here now, back with the mayor, uh, spending a little more time with her just generally on the issue of disaster preparedness, uh, and it has become abundantly clear to me the importance of this council on her. Uh, more and more she is recognizing the importance uh, and responsibility of the mayor's office and of all of you um, should we find ourselves in a position of needing to uh, activate and get to work. Uh, and so uh, on behalf of the mayor, let me say thank you to all of you for your commitment to this council uh, and your work. Uh, looking ahead at this agenda today, we've got some pretty good stuff. Uh, some information that I think is going to be very informative to all of us. Uh, and uh, I know the mayor is very much looking forward to a report back. So I look forward to the meeting, look forward to learning from all of you and uh, sharing what I learned with her. So again, thank you for your work. Thank you, Sean, and thanks to Mayor Breed for, um, for both of your leadership and commitment to a prepared and resilient San Francisco. I'm really humbled um, as I look around the room um, with all the people that are here um, who are also committed um, to that goal. And um, in today's meeting, we will be beginning with reports on our air quality initiatives. We have new technology at 911 that we're going to share information about. Um, we're going to talk about Fleet Week training and exercise program, which is uh, coming up in the fall. Uh, Fire will report on the Fort Funston landslide incident. Uh, Emily Cohen from the mayor's office will talk about Healthy Streets Operations Center. And we will also be talking about the local business recovery efforts from the Geary and Parker fire and gas line explosion. Um, we've been very busy since our last disaster council meeting, and I will just touch briefly on a few um, incidents, projects, and topics that we won't go into too much depth. But I wanted to um, just announce that the Watch Center at uh, DEM began in January. We had our first class go through the month-long academy, and they are all now um, they are all now uh, on board. And um, the Watch Center, which was funded with support of the mayor's office and the board of supervisors, provides San Francisco with really a centralized hub um, to monitor, monitor every day, seven days a week, all major incidents that take place. They help re, uh, coordinate emergency response and issue public alerts. And this is, the Watch Center is, is a difference and an, uh, um, an improvement in our operations in that we used to not have folks there every day. Now we have someone who, with the lights on, ready to respond seven days a week. Um, I'd like to thank um, the Watch Center coordinators, Anna Sopp and Joe Riley. Joe recently rejoined the port, so we're happy to have his expertise at the port, but they both work really hard to launch the Watch Center. 
In addition, the emergency response plan for the city of San Francisco is uh, revision is underway. We are required to revise this plan every five years. It's really the city's master plan for emergency response and guides all of our efforts, um, all of our support functions and annexes. And um, DEM planner Edie Schaefer, is she here? Um, has worked really long and hard on that. Um, the winter storm response, so we've had um, more than 14 inches of rain that fell and continue to fall as we speak here um, in San Francisco. And I think due to our coordination and response planning, um, we really were able to manage all of that uh, rain over the winter. And thank our partners at the National Weather Service, and they do a great job of supporting us and keeping us informed of any weather situations that may be coming our way. Um, so, and before we move on to our very heavy agenda, I want to, um, I want to, I'm sorry, uh, uh, recognize um, our new Board of Supervisor, President Norman Yee, um, here. And as the new um, President of the Board of Supervisors, he has the opportunity to appoint three supervisors to the uh, Disaster Council, although all are welcome. And um, he has appointed Supervisor Brown and reappointed Supervisor Stephanie. Um, President Yee, if, you have, if you'd like to say any words to the council, you're welcome to do so. No, I'm just uh, glad to be part of this. And this is uh, really, to me, a, a, one of the more important councils at City Hall. This is where we're going to be paying attention to any type of disasters. And we, like, we've had things going on around us in the Bay Area. And we know how important it is to be able to respond, not only within our own, own jurisdiction, but also to help our neighbors. So welcome, everybody. Thank you, Supervisor Yee. So now we will get started. Um, our first agenda item is under planning, and we are gonna get a status on the report, uh, a status report on the Executive Director 18, uh, Directive 18-04 on improving San Francisco's response to future air quality incidents. And I believe Dr. Tomas Aragon is going to present. Good morning, everyone, can you hear me? Is this working? Yes. Okay, fantastic. Um, so uh, what I wanna do is just cover some concepts. I, th I think I have about 10 minutes, is that correct? Okay, so one thing, I'm gonna just mention a few key concepts that we think about as we think about air quality. One is we're thinking about the natural environment, the built environment, and then we're thinking about us as human receptors. So those three domains are gonna be interacting. And then the other, the other uh, key concepts that we think about is that we have a, a hazard, exposure to that hazard, and then we're trying to prevent disease, disability, and death. And so as much as possible, we wanna keep people we want to be able to mitigate at every, one of those, at every one of those levels. But it gives you an idea of the complexity. Um, I do want to um, just uh, acknowledge also that I have uh, Dr. Jan Gurley and Tiffany Rivera here from Public Health Emergency Preparedness, who will be able to provide any more detailed information as I go through this presentation. So uh, let's go to the next slide. So the plan that we currently have is available on the table on the outside. And it's a plan, it's a, it's a place where we're gonna start should we have another air quality event that, like we had back in November of 2018. 
It's going to be an iterative process because there still needs to be going ongoing collaboration and planning with our regional partners. So currently in the Bay Area, we're working closely with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, and we're also working with the Association of Bay Area Health Officials to make sure that around health that we have a unified message and we have a unified response plan. So there's a lot of activity going on there. The other gap that we have is just in the area of scientific consensus. You'll see as I go through this presentation, there are really gap areas, and there's some areas where there's no right answer. There's only trade-offs. And how do you communicate something when there's trade-offs and you want to be communicating in a, in a very clear way? And, and then we want to be able to implement new, new best practices as they become available. So if you turn to the next slide, so when you look at the plan, you'll see that it's broken up into six different sections. There's a hazard overview, the AQI respo response grid, and I went, over, I went over AQI at the last disaster council. Uh, and then uh, and the plan then has a San Francisco overview, a public health response overview, and then uh, additional response um, considerations, and then resources that are available. I'm going, to go through, I'm going to give you a high-level overview of a few of those areas. The details are in the plan. And then when we, if we have any questions, we have staff here that can answer some of the questions. So on the next slide, so right now we're really in preparedness mode. And so the, this preparedness time right now is really critical. So for example, when, when we have another air quality event, people are going to be asking, where are the N95 respirators? Well, now is the time to start thinking about N95 respirators. So everybody, it should really be part of your, your, your uh, preparedness, um, just your disaster kit at home, because we, we realize is that there's many uses for these N95. So now's the time to really start thinking about that. Um, and we're going to be, again, we're going to be working with our regional partners to make sure that we have a unified uh, message and response plan for that. The other area to really think about that's really critical for us is that we know that because of climate change, temperature and fires are going to be associated. So it's, very, it's possible that we're going to have a poor air quality day where the temperatures are elevated. And you can see how that really can complicate our messages because if you have poor air quality, you're telling people to stay indoors. But if indoors, the temperature is 110 because it can be up to 20 degrees higher indoors if you don't have air conditioning, we can actually be hurting more people by telling people to be indoors to protect them from poor air quality. So when if we have a heat event, which is, is it's very possible with poor air quality, we have to really, that's going to be a big mind shift for us because we have to really be careful about sheltering in place if people are, do not have access to a, buildings that are air conditioned. So this is part of our, our lo longer term thinking. We've also revised our AQI grid. And the AQI grid is this, it, 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 follows, it follows the colors. Um, it's, a, it's a matrix that has, that has tentative plans for what we're going to do for, for different levels of the AQI grid. And what we're doing is we're making it more flexible. Um, we're, trying to make, we're trying to make sure that we have more time to have to have discussion with issues because you don't want to have a plan that says do something in four hours and in fact the, 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 the fire in the area may actually be winding down and so we have to really think carefully. So we're making it, we're making it more, we're, make, we're making that more flexible. And you'll see that in the, in the matrix grid. Let's go to the, the next slide. <clears throat> so under, there's three areas that I want to briefly discuss. 
Just to give you an idea of how complicated the message can be with N95 respirators, I know when, when air quality gets bad, people have this intense focus on N95. I just want to give you one example of why this is complex. So imagine that you have asthma, you have asthma, and that your asthma is triggered by poor air quality. Guess what? You're, you're going to want to not only avoid poor air, but if you can't avoid poor air, that N95 may actually really protect you from your asthma getting worse, correct? Imagine you're the same person, and instead of having asthma from poor air quality, imagine that the trigger is a respiratory virus. And so now you have an asthma exacerbation, you have a, you have a, because of this respiratory virus that you have, and you put on a really good air-fitting mask that you now have to breathe through, have more airway resistant, and this mask is gonna make your health condition worse. So you can see how something as, as like asthma, where the N95 in one hand is gonna save you, and the other hand it's gonna make you worse. And this is really the challenge, this is one of the challenges that we have when we're communicating around health messages, is that we have these nuances that we have to take into account. We have to take into account. Um, and then the other area about, about vulnerable populations, and so uh, a couple of different ways that we think about vulnerable populations is the very old, the very young, pregnant, those that have a cardiopulmonary disease, and then those that have situational exposures. Situational exposures being, being outdoors or exercising, so that's one way. The other, the other dimension that we think about uh, vulnerable populations are those that actually have no opportunity to mitigate their exposure. So for example, that's gonna be primarily people who are homeless. The other one is gonna be those that are, that's partially situational where they can mitigate their exposure some of the time, and that's gonna be a lot of our staff. So people, we, people who have to be outdoors, so a really critical thing for the city is that we have to make sure that we continue to provide critical services for everybody in the city, um, which means that we're gonna have our workers exposed. So there's a lot of work working with HR to make sure that we, we have a good um, occupational plan and we, we, we address these issues of, of exposures. Um, and then the third area here is gonna be, um, that, that's sort of represented by what says climate change language, is again, it's gonna be working with uh, our regional partners and one of the areas under that category of regional partners that we have to, we're gonna be struggling with, um, but we've, there's consensus in terms of principles is gonna be with the school districts. So the school districts understand that schools are actually a, is a safe place for children to be. If they're not in school, you have no idea where they're gonna be. They're gonna be all over. Parents then have to take time off from work. Students may actually get worse exposures if they're not in school, recognizing that parents need to make individual decisions with their children and we need to support those decisions. In the last event, the schools were very, very supportive of that principle, but again, they're way, they're, they, 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 they um, weigh the, tra the trade-offs. The other one we're gonna, we're gonna have to deal with also is gonna be outdoor events. What we're gonna do, what we're gonna do with those. And I think, and I think we're, again, we're not gonna have sort of a black and white decision now is that as we learn more, we have to really get together and sort of make sense whether this is, this is gonna, um, it's gonna work for us to, quote unquote, cancel a, an event. So those are the major areas. I wanna say that we've learned a tremendous amount from the first, um, the first, actually the, over the last two years, we've learned a tremendous amount. We still have a tremendous amount more to do. We have more planning. I feel, I feel, I feel like we're, I feel more confident, uh, but I also wanna remind people that if the temperature gets really high, it's gonna be a paradigm shift for us. We're gonna be primarily focusing on temperature. 
Um, and I want to make sure, did I miss anything big, Jan? No, I, um, the only thing I would emphasize that is that there's also a growing consensus among the Association of Bay Area Health Officers and the Bay Area Air Quality Management District that the harder decisions around infrastructure are probably going to be the most effective public health response. Issues around indoor air purifiers, um, doing what we need to do to sort of come to terms with the fact that more of these events are in our future rather than short-term responses like N95 respirators or not. And we have to realize that if we do have a heat event that San Francisco as physiologically we are not acclimated and our buildings are not acclimated so to speak. When we had the event a couple years ago over Labor Day, we had, we had, we had infrastructure that was failing. We had clinical lab, laboratory machines that were failing in, in hospitals, for example. So the, the physical infrastructure and the human infrastructure is not prepared for heat events. Okay. Any questions? Okay. Doctor, thank you. Um, the one thing I can share with you from the mayor's perspective that um, I know she would look forward to working on with you, with everyone here, is communication about the value of the mass. I mean, she was very frustrated by those who simplistically said, mass, mass, mass everywhere, fix the problem, where when talking with you and your department, it was very clear that is not the answer. And so I think uh, before we have one of these scenarios again, the more education we can do to make sure everyone knows who would benefit and who would not and how we can distribute them would be very helpful. Absolutely. I'm actually looking. I realized that I, I skipped a, a couple of points from one of my slides. There's what I what it, um, it says here: um, three E's, exposure reduction. So we really want to focus on exposure reduction, empower people. This is exactly what you're mentioning about education, and then insurance services and safe uh, microenvironments for folks. So those are the three key goals that we want to make sure, and it incorporates what uh, the chief staff just said. Thank you. Any more questions? All right, thanks. Um, the, uh, on similar related topic, we're going to talk about cleaner air centers. And Brian, are you going to speak to that? From, Brian Strong from the City Administrator's Office. Yes, thank you, Brian Strong, uh, with the Office of Res Resilience and Capital Planning within the City Administrator's Office. Uh, Naomi, the City Administrator, apologizes. She was unable to attend but asked me to make a few points, talking points about what we're doing, um, sort of following up uh, on the question about how to make our, how to acclimate our buildings to be better able to respond to heat and air quality issues. Uh, our office has been coordinating a group of city hall fellows, I should say a very, a group of very um, dedicated, smart, um, active, um, young people that we were able to sort of pull in very quickly uh, around the executive directive to look at our facilities uh, and to identify, you know, sort of facilities that we currently or could, we could currently use or that could be somewhat easily um, uh, retrofitted to be used for as a cooling centers and heat respite centers. Um, and also to think about future facilities and, and how we should be thinking about future capital projects and so forth when we're designing a rec center or, or something else, um, you know, how can we make sure that we're thinking about heat and climate, heat, climate, and air quality when that happens? 
So we are expecting a preliminary report um, toward the end of May, uh, and I do think it will then be coming back to, to this council. Uh, we've been working with a number of different departments. We've been doing stakeholder interviews, primarily with departments that manage these facilities. So Department of Public Health, Recreation and Park, uh, the library, uh, working with the Department of Environment, of course, as well, and the PUC that, does, that has done a lot of work around our HVAC systems to sort of understand what, um, what are the key components of the buildings that we need to, um, that we need to ensure we have to understand you know, the access of air in and out of buildings. I should say we've done a lot of work in the past 15, 20, 30 years around making sure that we could bring in natural air into our buildings. Um, and now we have to make sure that we can stop that natural air when we need to, um, to address some of these, these issues. Um, the, the information that we're collecting, we're putting, in, um, we're putting into sort of a, a list of facilities, a facility database um, that you know, incorporates our shelter list and some of those other key, the, the key places where people uh, are expected to stay after disasters already and seeing how we can make those work when, with respect to heat and air quality. Um, and then we will be bringing that, um, we're, we're sort of putting that information together uh, and again to think about existing buildings uh, and, and sort of future buildings. So how, how do we address those two sets? And I, the, the real goal is to make sure we have a, a real list together before we start to see, you know, before the end of summer when we expect to start to see the next, you know, heat waves and so forth. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Question? Yes. Um, I'm glad we're actually doing an inventory of these buildings because I, I believe it was last year when we had a, the heat and, and also the the fires, um, we realized on the west side, we, it was hard to identify which, where to send people. And as you move forward in, in identifying the buildings, and if you see a, a pattern of inequity in terms of um, where these facilities could be, that you prioritize those areas where they have the least um, uh, amount of buildings that can actually accommodate, uh, especially uh, seniors and people with asthma. Thank you. Yeah. Any more questions or comments? Okay, thanks. Continuing on the report around the directive, I will give just a brief oral report on our efforts to provide mutual aid in the form of our civilian responders. Um, so the California Office of Emergency Services in conjunction with the California State Training Institute have implemented new emergency operations center position credentialing requirements and, um, and a program to successfully support and help field operations. Um, and so to that end, we at the Department of Emergency Management, we're utilizing the new credentialing system to credential key EOC, Emergency Operations Center, and DOC, Department Operations Center response positions, and apply the system to the appropriate departments within the emergency response function uh, focus. So currently, we at DM have identified all type three and type two baseline trainings with a performance evaluation process for each um, key position. We're working in coordination with the institute to deliver these trainings to city and county employees, and that will help us support 
um, our team for future deployments. Um, I, I guess what this translates to is that we will be reaching out to all the city departments to identify key employees who will go through these trainings so that we will have multidisciplinary <coughs> interdepartmental teams that will be prepared for deployment. And of course, this is part of this mutual aid um, directive, but obviously this will greatly enhance our own capability in-house when we are called to respond to any emergency that we might undergo. So please look forward to a friendly correspondence from me in the near future um, to asking you to um, work with us to identify those individuals who will go through this training. And I just want to um, I just want to point, um, give some uh, shout out to Andrea Jorgensen and Nubia Mendoza, who are here in the room from our team who are leading this effort. And if you have any questions, Andrea and Nubia, if you guys just stand up, most of you probably know them, but there they are. They're happy to help you, and we'll be continuing to work closely with the departments on this. Um, finally, Francis Zamora is going to step up, and he's going to talk about the Bay Area Regional Air Quality Messaging Project. Good morning, Disaster Council. And as has been talked about a lot today is the need to communicate with people and provide them with information during air quality events. And so um, it is critically important that we not only coordinate our communications as a city, but we coordinate our communications as a region during air quality events. The air quality just doesn't stop at our city borders. Um, it is important that we as a region, whether we're in the South Bay, the East Bay, or the North Bay, or even here in San Francisco, are, have the same type of messaging and are providing with the same information to our partners. As a result, the Department of Emergency Management and Public Health are working with our regional partners with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, the uh, Regional Joint Information System, which is a committee of public information officers involved in emergency response, uh, the Bay Area UASI, and the Association of Bay Area Health Officers to come together to really figure out what are those protective health messages and that public information that needs to go out before, during, and after a health, uh, an air quality emergency. And so the project has three main deliverables. What we want to do is develop a public information toolkit for the region that has protective health measures uh, before, before an air quality event, during an air quality event. And the other critically important thing is that it is available in all uh, threshold languages within the Bay Area. So here in San Francisco, that would include Cantonese, Mandarin, Filipino, and Spanish. But say if you're in San Jose, that would include Vietnamese as well. So we want to make sure that it is accessible for all people. Uh, the other thing we want to do is create a resource guide for hard-to-reach populations. We know that people don't receive information the same way. And that was something that was made, I think, clear to all of us, not only here in San Francisco, but throughout the Bay Area, that we really need to do our best and do a better job of reaching hard-to-reach populations. These are seniors, people with access and functional needs, immigrant communities, uh, people with limited English proficiency. And so that's going to be part of this, uh, this, uh, this project as well. Finally, we're creating a digital repository so that once these resources are available, any jurisdiction in, San uh, any jurisdiction in the Bay Area can access them and use them before, during, and after an air quality event. Next slide, please. 
And so right now, we are in the research and information gathering phase of the project. And so one of the first things we did was we sent out a survey. And we, had, we sent out three types of surveys, one to public information officers, one to health officers, which is actually still underway, and uh, one to community-based organizations and elected officials. And so we got a lot of great feedback from uh, people throughout the region. The one thing I want to note is this was a regional survey. And so my next slide is going to talk about some of the feedback that we've received so far. And so this was the survey responses from CBOs, elected officials, and actually some health officers took this, but they have a very specific survey that will be going out soon. Um, some of the challenges that they saw regionally, there was a lack of good solutions, um, lack of translated materials, public wanted more information, messages are not usually received quickly enough to disseminate. Some of the recommendations, um, uh, they wanted to local, uh, empower local organizations to take the necessary actions to protect their citizens. Uh, one of the, uh, the things we did here in San Francisco is we, did, we took this survey live to some of our community groups. Uh, we did a, a one outreach event out in the Richmond District, and it, it was amazing because one of the CBOs involved was talking about how they received the information from the city, from the, the Department of, of Emergency Management and the Department of Public Health. And they took all the protective health measures and they stopped work for the day and the entire staff called their 300 clients to make sure that they were checking in on them and making sure that they got the information they need. This is incredibly powerful. This is, this is a, incredibly powerful, a whole community response and what you know, we, we, sh we, should be, we should admire and expect from our community-based organizations who play a huge role in responding to emergencies. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, public information, officer, information officers also um, also responded to the survey. And you're going to see a couple uh, contradicting things here as well. Again, this was a regional survey. And so for some jurisdictions, translated materials were readily available at the outset. I'm, I'm proud to say in San Francisco we had that readily available. In other jurisdictions, that was not the case. And so you'll see that as a success and a challenge. A lot of people uh, also use had a, a good, uh, um, good experience with the use of mass notification systems. Um, but then one of the challenges that we see here, and especially this is why we're working as a region, is sometimes there's lack of agreement on what the actual, you know, uh, what the actual message should be in terms of what action you should take. And so we're going to continue on with this project. In May, we're going to have a regional workshop to discuss what our findings have been so far, present an initial public information toolkit. Um, we're going to do some outreach, additional outreach sessions with the Association of Barrier Health Officers. And then by June, late May, we should have a, a, a viable toolkit that we can start to test out should we have an air quality event in the future. Now, that doesn't mean it won't change. That doesn't mean that there won't be additional input. But it does mean that you know, we should have something we can test out. Now, by September, We'll have some more time to get gather some input, and what we hope to have is that digital repository up, and we'll have uh, we'll hope we'll host workshops and webinars to the region to basically explain how you can access the information and use it for for uh, for air quality events. Are there any questions? Okay, thank you. Um, I just want to sort of say how important, thank you for your work, how important the regional focus is on this because there's no way we can have, just have a San Francisco message. These events affect us regionally. We're crossing our borders all the time. So thank you for your efforts to coordinate on the region, in a regional way. 
Um, so now we are calling, uh, it's time for a call, if there's any call, anyone for public comment for this item number four. I don't have any cards for it. But. Okay, seeing none, we're gonna move on. I'm sorry, that was number three. So now we are moving on to emergency preparedness, and I believe Rob, Rob Smuts, our de de Deputy Director for the Division of Emergency Communications at DEM, is gonna talk to us about rapid SOS. Good morning. Um, uh, my name's Rob Smuts, uh, as uh, um, Executive Director uh, Carol said. Um, most people think that when you call 911, the 911 center knows immediately where you are. People think of uh, the TV shows they've seen that um, present an inaccurate uh, image of that. In, in fact, if you call from a cell phone, less than 50% of calls do we receive information within 50 meters, um, and, which is really the minimum um, uh, threshold to be useful uh, in, in most uh, circumstances. So over half calls, we never get um, information that is uh, useful in emergency circumstance, and it also is delayed. It takes at least 30 seconds to, uh, to reach uh, the 911 center. And that's because the technology for locations that is in our phone, available to all the apps that we have, um, only some of those technologies are conveyed through the 911 system uh, through the cell phone carriers. Um, and this is one of the sort of dirty secrets of the 911 system uh, nationwide. Um, we are very grateful that we are now finding a way around this problem uh, to access all of the location technology in your cell phone. Um, just to speak on the scope of this, a 2014 FEC, uh, FEC um, FCC report um, estimated that proof location data would save 10,000 lives annually nationwide. Um, and so uh, where we are, and this map up here just gives an, a real-life example of uh, some, uh, some of the challenges we have. That's a, a six blocks radius. Um, that's the location data we got on an emergency call. Um, you can see the actual location uh, was in the middle, not quite in the exact middle, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so going to the next slide, um, so the two main... Um, uh, cell phone um, system, uh, the Apple and Alphabet, Google, um, got tired of waiting for the carriers to work with them to uh, solve this problem, and so worked on an end run um, around the carriers to provide this information to 911 centers. Uh, and we are going to be, we starting in September, we were one of the first um, 911 centers in California uh, to start accessing this data. Uh, and next month, we hope to, uh, through another vendor, be able to have this data automatically queried um, immediately when a cell phone call comes in and presented to the 911 dispatcher. Uh, since September, we've had to enter the cell phone number into a database, and it will give us the information. Um, and uh, going to the next slide, just two examples of, of um, how we've already successfully used this technology. The first is the, the map that was on the first slide. Um, we had a call from a, a disoriented person who had fallen down a stairwell uh, in, his, uh, in his building and could not give us an address. Uh, he needed medical attention, he could not move, um, and he didn't know where he was. The only information he would give us was that um, his building was next to an auto repair shop. Um, the location we got from the cell phone carriers was a um, six block radius, which was not going to be helpful um, for finding this individual. Um, using Rapid SOS, uh, we got um, the address, um, I think it was 150 to 166 uh, Turk Street. 
uh, which was two buildings. Um, when we pulled that up on Google Maps, you can see the picture there. One building was an SRO and one building was an auto repair shop. Um, so we, uh, with a strong level of confidence, knew exactly where to send uh, the fire department who located the individual and was able to give him medical assistance. Um, which would not have been possible with the technology um, that uh, the carriers provide to us. Um, the second example was um, a sailboat uh, crashed into uh, Alcatraz Island uh, and couldn't tell us where on the island they were. Um, Rapid SOS provided the information, uh, very detailed. You can't really see there's a pin drop by the laundry building um, that it was provided. We provided that to the fire department who was able to respond uh, and provide assistance um, in a timely manner. Um, and uh, so the, the first test area was uh, Tennessee for this technology, uh, and they did a study on it. Um, and their study showed that um, location accuracy, usable location accuracy, um, um, uh, less than 50 meters, went from about 45% up to about 97% uh, of calls. Um, and uh, that, I think, mirrors our experience so far. The, Technology that um, is available through the carriers um, is, um, has a problem with um, tall buildings and has a problem with challenging geogra uh, geography, which you know, describes a lot of San Francisco. Um, and the, um, the technology that was not accessible um, uh, through the carriers, uh, Wi-Fi triangulation, Bluetooth uh, triangulation, and things like that, is more useful in densely uh, packed areas. So that is uh, information that is particularly helpful uh, for San Francisco. Um, so we are very happy that um, we are able to um, work with, the, um, with Apple and Alphabet uh, to have this work around to get usable, and we believe dispatchable, um, location information from cell phones. Uh, and we, I think we will be one of the first in the country to have this automated um, and available for uh, callers. Thank you. Thanks. Any questions? Okay, great. Rob, this is exciting. Um, so kudos to you. I already feel safer as a resident of the city. Um, but let me ask you something. I know you are going out to procure a new software system, CAD system. So is this technology now baked into the new generation CAD systems? Or will you have to build integrations? Or how does that work? The CAD companies are starting to talk about um, building out the capacity for this to be automated in their system. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we do our RFP for the CAD system, this will be a requirement that we, um, uh, we expect for the responders. That's exciting. And I know we're doing a lot of work around the 5G um, implementation in the city, so I would just encourage you to figure out how that intersects, that technology will intersect with new cell phones and this workaround. And and um, I glossed over it um, for time, but there are uh, further improvements that will come um, through this technology. Uh, Z-axis, which is um, um, uh, you know, what floor on a building um, you're on, is, um, is being developed, and we expect to be able to get uh, relatively shortly through um, these vendors. The Rapid SOS, which provides the location uh, data, and Rave Modal, which um, is what integrates the Rapid uh, data into our uh, systems to provide that automatically. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to uh, further enhancements. Great. Thanks. Thank you. So um, the second part of this item is a report out on Fleet Week. Jill Raycroft is going to... 
Good morning. Uh, we're going to be showing you a video of last year's Fleet Week exercise that focused on fuel. exciting, as you can tell. <laughs> and if you come to the exercise, you might get in the video. So um, last year we looked at fuel and who thought we could make fuel look so interesting and fun. It was a great opportunity to work with fire department partners, the Port of San Francisco, MTA, Public Works, PUC. Uh, it is also a great opportunity to work directly with federal partners in our city. So as we know, in a major disaster, like that looming earthquake, we cannot do it on our own. State, federal, private sector, non-governmental partners are going to be key for us. Um, and it's also great, we did an exercise in a part of the city that a lot of folks have not spent a lot of time in. So our federal staging area is at Pier 96, which is in the eastern part of the city. And it was great to be out in that area and see the capability of that large real estate. So this year we'll be looking at 
disaster debris management. We have a new disaster debris management plan, as well as emergency route reopening. And Lonnie Haley Nelson, who's sitting right here, is our lead plan writer for that. Um, this has been a plan that's been in the works for many years. It's very exciting that we're going to tie a bow on it soon. We'll be testing this plan as well as our DDMP. Actually, next week at a local exercise that Cynthia Chono from Public Works is organizing. Then we'll be moving into larger exercises with our state, federal, nonprofit, and private sector partners. The federal agencies that are really going to be key for this are the US Army Corps of Engineers, as well as the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Our capstone event will be on Monday, October 7th. We will be doing a full-scale exercise at some place on the pier. We're talking about Pier 27, which would be a neat new location to look at. Um, and we'll be looking at activating the Public Works Department Operations Center and other DOCs. I think that's a very important nexus in these exercises. We'll also be doing our senior leader seminar that week, as well as a lot of the other activities that you saw in the video. So my contact information, I believe, is on one of the slides or in here, and I'm happy to give you more information should you need it. Okay, thanks, Jill. Yeah, I just, there, a lot goes on at Fleet Week, and to be honest, I've worked for the city for 15 years, and it wasn't until I was really, um, in, you know, in this position, learned how much happens. And so I will really be pushing and encouraging um, participation from all the departments because really from every sector, there is an opportunity to participate and learn. Thanks, Jill. And thanks, Jill, for your leadership over the years with Fleet Week. It's much appreciated. Jill's been really key in growing the program for us. Um, so I, do we have any, uh, any public comment on this item? I don't have a card for it, so moving forward, we will move over to the next item, which is emergency response. We're going to get a report from fire department on the Fort Funston landslide. Thank you, Chief. Good morning. Uh, thank you, Mary Ellen. Assistant Deputy Chief Mike Cochran, Homeland Security. I do have an operational report summary on the fire department, uh, but first, the fire department would like to thank all the agencies that were involved in this tragic incident, and our hearts go out to the family of the victim. So on February 22nd, at approximately 1439 hours, a 911 call was received that a person fell down the hill at Fort Funston in the Golden Gate uh, National Recreation Area and was in the mud, and waves were coming over her. A surf rescue response was dispatched along with a cliff rescue unit response from the San Francisco Fire Department. Units on the scene were advised by bystanders that the initial victim was assisted out of the water and we transferred her with our medic unit to SF General, but another victim was reported missing. So due to the multitude of agencies that responded, our incident commander set up a unified command and exhaustive efforts began by our members for several hours with every resource available uh, to attempt to rescue this victim. Additional truck companies and canine units from the San Francisco Fire Department, San Mateo County, DPH also responded. We approximately had 42 members, along with command staff during the initial response. I want to thank the DEM. Uh, there was multi a multitude of resource requests that they handled from technical specialists to heavy equipment. And there was a lot of moving parts. So um, unfortunately, after hours of searching and nightfall was approaching, the cliff was deemed unstable, copied with the survivability profile of the victim, it was determined to transition from a rescue mission to a recovery mission. An action plans were uh, created for the recovery, and after several days, 
uh, the decision was made to cease ser the search operations. Then, on March 25th at 0754, a cliff rescue response was dispatched for a body recovery at Fort Funston. Uh, SFFD units assisted the medical examiner at the scene, which was later determined to be the missing landslide victim. Once again, condolences from the San Francisco Fire Department to the family of the victim. Thank you, Chief. Uh, the next item is, uh, an, are there any questions for Chief Cochran on that item? The next item is an update on the Healthy Streets Operations Center. Emily Cohen from the Mayor's Office. Emily Cohen with the Mayor's Office, and I'm going to give a brief overview of the Healthy Streets Operations Center. Um, I have some slides here behind, behind me. Um, as everyone in this room knows, homelessness is a crisis that we're facing on the streets of San Francisco every day. Some of the numbers projected here give you a high-level overview of sort of the scope of the challenge we're talking about. On any given night, we estimate that we have about 7,500 people experience, experiencing homelessness in our community, about 4,300 of those folks are sleeping unsheltered on our streets. We also estimate that over the course of the year, we'll see closer to 20,000 people experience homelessness in San Francisco during that time. And there's currently over 1,100 people on our shelter waiting list. And so homelessness is a challenge that every, almost all of your departments and your organizations touch in some way. And just wanna thank you all for your participation in that work. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about the Healthy Streets Operations Center, which was started in 2018 as a innovative approach to addressing particularly street homelessness and unhealthy and disruptive street behavior. Um, and HSOC is a collaboration, a deep collaboration of multiple city departments, and we'll have a slide that shows all of them in a second here. But HSOC provides the infrastructure for genuine and deep coordination to provide the right service to the right resource to the right person at the right time when they're experiencing a crisis on our streets. Uh, we lead with services. It's the core mission of HSOC while it involves SFPD, fire, public works, public health, Department of Homelessness, DEM, 311 and many other folks in the room. The, the mission is to lead with services, approach people on the street, offer them an opportunity to come inside, a connection with service, and um, really trying to provide the safe and clean streets for everyone in our community, both housed and unhoused. This slide is just a quick overview of all the participating departments, so thank you. The goals of HSOC are to deliver coordinated care to improve the medical behavioral health of people experiencing homelessness on the streets, to meet the shelter and service needs of folks sleeping outside, and to ensure that San Francisco's streets are safe and clean for everyone. So what is HSOC? It's essentially a joint command center, an incident command center out of DEM, where we are able to coordinate calls coming in about homelessness and street behavior. We're able to coordinate the dispatch back out. We participate in collaborative planning for resolving encampments or addressing problems that we see arising in the community. Um, and we do this all by sharing a lot of data and information and working together to plan those operations. Some of the outcomes, so we're just over one year into HSOC and it's been a tremendously successful joint effort. We've resolved 25 large encampments with over with six or more tents in them and through that effort have connected over 365 people with shelter so 
sort of pre-HSOC and this expansion of resources in our community, we'd often go out and try to clean up encampments and it would essentially move folks from one corner to the next. But by going with a service first approach, bringing the capacity of the shelter system with us to resolve encampments, we're able to invite everyone in rather than just asking people to move. And that's a critical component to the success of the encampment resolution. And we found that 65% of people who we encounter through that process accept offers of shelter placement. Uh, through this, we've seen a 40% reduction in tents on the street across the city and a 65% reduction in six or more tent, tent encampments of six or more tents and a 100% reduction in encampments of 10 or more tents. So this has been an incredibly successful partnership to bring people inside and reduce tent encampments on our streets. Uh, we've also started pivoting this approach to not just tent encampments, but also uh, folks living in their vehicles and approaching clusters of vehicular homelessness in the same model. Uh, we have created streamlined processes and really improved data. The coordination has been really instrumental to getting those outcomes that we just discussed. I think one of the biggest successes of HSOC beyond the deep partnership and collaboration is really this reduction in tents. So when in 20, August of 2016, when the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing was launched, we had over 1,200 tents on the streets of San Francisco. In January of 2019, that number was down to 340. So a really dramatic reduction. And this is not just correspond with the coordinated work of HSOC, which has been critical, but is also corresponded with an increased investment in capacity for people to move off the street and into a navigation center, a shelter, or a housing unit eventually. So how does it work? Sorry, we already did how it works. One of the other big things that a great outcome of HSOC is reducing the time for response to 311 calls related to homelessness. So a lot of the work at HSOC has been around better coordination with the 311 system, improving our ability to respond, and as you'll see, a fairly significant reduction, not just in the time it takes to respond to 311 calls, and these are specifically homelessness-related, encampment-related 311 calls, but also this, this bar graph part of this is the standard deviation of time, and I think that's what one of the things we really have to be proud of is the shrinking of that variance. We are getting not only, we're getting better and much more consistent in how we're able to respond to 311 calls. And then, of course, the big impacts on this next slide, you can see a pretty dramatic reduction in calls for service. Average response time is down 27% to those calls. As I mentioned before, the 40% reduction in tents overall. Um, and the importance of the expansion of the services to, to provide that resource to the officers and the outreach teams who are going out and doing the work. You know, during the same, well, a little bit earlier and then the same time of HSOC, adding nearly 700 shelter beds, nearly 400 housing units, and 99 behavioral health beds has been really critical to the success of this work. And then a few additional outcomes to share with folks. DPH outreaches, uh, contacts have been, you know, almost 8,000 people have been reached through that approach. Uh, 90,000 needles have been collected. And, you know, the, res the encampment resolutions that we've referenced, 25 of those resolutions alone in 2018. So I'm happy to answer any questions related to HSOC, but also just want to 
send out my appreciation to each of the departments that have worked so hard at really changing the way we do work in the city to be deeply, deeply collaborative when it comes to homelessness and our response to uh, folks living outside. So thank you. Thank you, Emily. Any questions for Emily? Is there any public comment on this item? Go ahead. You could go up, um, yeah, that's fine. You can just use that one. That's fine. Sure. Um, I'm Nancy Werfel um, with comments on item six for reports on emergency responses. I fully expect that this council would have had at least a preliminary report about the responses of the fire department, the SFPUC, police, and PG&E to the explosion on Geary Street. This is an important recent emergency affecting major traffic artery in the city and affecting commercial and residential areas that offers many lessons to be learned. I understand from the fire department that they were running out of water because of the length of time needed for PG&E to shut off the gas. Also, I understand that there does not exist a current mapping of the gas lines under this part of Geary Street. These are exactly the kinds of issues that this council should be hearing about from the initial reports by the relevant city departments involved and then following up on recommendations for improvement. The Disaster Council is charged in the administrative code with, quote, developing a plan for meeting any emergency, unquote. I wish to remind you that both the number four firefighting annex and the number 12 water utilities annex have not been updated since they were originally issued in 2008. There have been dramatic changes in the relationship of these two departments over the past 10 years, but no one can appreciate the impacts of these changes without an update. You cannot adequately plan for suppressing large fires happening after an earthquake when the details of how the PUC plans to deliver unlimited water to the fire department are not identified. If the PUC plans initially on using only locally stored water for firefighting, then how will the PUC judge what amount of potable water should be reserved for human uses? What is the backup plan B if there are more simultaneous fires than local reservoirs can cover? And if the expected water supply from Hetch Hetch is interrupted by one of the four earthquake faults along the 167 miles to get here. There is talk but no guarantee that the PUC will build a pump station at the ocean and even if the Lake Merced is not is used, it is not an unlimited supply of water. We need as much water as fires demand. If you had an item about the emergency responses <coughs> pardon me, to Geary Street explosion on this agenda today, you could have begun to examine the adequacy of your emergency response plans to deal with gas-fueled fires. Instead, your only interest is to hear about the recovery initiatives in the next agenda item. I believe your priorities are seriously misplaced. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thomas Dudier, Assistant Deputy Chief, San Francisco Fire Department, retired. We were given a glimpse into the intensity of the fires that will result from dozens of gas line ruptures and leaks in building gas pipes that a major earthquake will produce by the February 6th explosion at the intersection of Parker and Geary Streets. The lesson that we must learn 
is that while a single such incident can be managed by the SFFD using conventional water supplies from low pressure hydrants, the time required by PG&E to shut off the gas, which is about two and a half hours, resulted in the continuous need for large quantities of water over an extended period, as the wood frame buildings surrounding the rupture had to be protected from the radiated heat of the gas-fueled fireball. Post-earthquake, the SFFD will be unable to fight multiple gas-fueled fires in neighborhoods that have no AWSS hydrants, and thus entire neighborhoods may be destroyed by firestorms. Following a magnitude 7.8 earthquake, which is 30 times more powerful than what we experienced in 1989, um, not only will there be dozens of gas main ruptures, but the 100-year-old iron gas pipes in buildings in our wood frame neighborhoods will cause building envelopes to fill with gas that will have the explosive capacity of a small bomb once an ignition source like a disrupted electrical wires is encountered. Individual fires that are not immediately fought will cause firestorms that will rage through our 15 currently unprotected neighborhoods where there are no high-pressure auxiliary water supply hydrants. If you haven't made the mental link between what happened in the burned-out Santa Rosa neighborhoods or the town of Paradise and the future in post-earthquake San Francisco, then I suggest as members of the Disaster Council it might be beneficial to make a special effort to become educated in the subjects of, one, the geology of Northern California, and two, the histories of the 1906-1989 earthquakes. I would point out that some familiarity with these subjects would be very beneficial. I have provided a list of relevant books and DVDs to help you get started, uh, which I did not have enough of those, but uh, I apologize for that. Maybe you could share. Uh, and although some of the books are out of print, Everything on the list that I've provided is available through online vendors. Thank you. Thank you. For our next item, item number six, um, I would like to call for a motion to postpone this item in the interest of time. We're now over our meeting time. Um, do I have a motion to postpone? I, I'm sorry, item seven. Thank you. And a, a second? Okay. Thanks, Brian. Thank but you. It was going to be really good, so you're going to have to come to the next. <laughs> yes. Uh, all in favor? Any opposed? Okay, thank you. Okay, so we are four or five. Um, all right, next is our uh, Disaster Council roundtable. So this is an opportunity where any any Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are we? Yeah, we continued this item until next time. No, just. Okay. Okay. Did everyone understand that? Okay, so. We're going to do this item, then. Sounds like. Sorry, Jorge. All right. Thank you. So I'm here to, good morning, my name is Jorge Rivas, I'm with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, and I'm here to speak only about our re small business recovery efforts uh, regarding the uh, Gary fire, um, the Gary Parker fire that occurred earlier this year. So um, just, just really quickly, after the, uh, the fire, our team went out there just to assess and connect with the small business owners and connect with their employees to make sure that they felt supported on behalf of the city. Uh, soon after that, we learned that um, directly there was one business that was impacted, Hong Kong Lounge, and two nonprofits, uh, Huckleberry uh, Youth <laughs> Programs and uh, Human Services Network, which is actually a sub-tenant of Huckleberry. 
which we learned after. And uh, soon after that, we had a, uh, also we learned that there's other businesses that were, that were indirectly impacted, like the H&R Block across the street and others, but though we necessarily, we reached out to them to see how they were doing, most of them were fine. These are the three that we focused our services and our attention to. Um, soon after that, our response team, rapid response team went out, which is on the workforce side to connect with small, uh, the small business owners, employees, and ensure that they felt supported. We hosted an orientation a week later where uh, 14 of the 25 employees of Huckleberry, uh, Huckleberry and Hakan Lounge attended. Most of the Huckleberry employees were relocated to a different site. Uh, some of the employees of uh, the Hong Kong Lounge needed support and services. Some of them had already found uh, other employment at that time. So, and then soon after that, we also deployed the applications for our disaster relief fund, which is a $10,000, up to $10,000 grant that's available to the small business owners and or the nonprofits for their recovery efforts soon after that. To date, um, Hong Kong Lounge has applied and received the resources. Huckleberry has applied, and the, we're still waiting on the application from the Human Services Network, which, who has expressed interest in applying. They do have a 12 months after the incident occurs to apply for the resources. And most of the resources that are, used, are utilized for either unforeseen expenses because of the fire, or either whether it goes to employee wages, buy a new technology, and relocation fees. So, and if there's any questions, I'm happy to provide them. So. Okay, thank you. Are there any questions? Um, it, was, it was really great to, I was out there um, the night of the fire, and to have your staff there in the field you know, immediately responding, I think was very helpful. So thank you so much. And look forward to continued partnership with OEWD on this. Um, any public comment on this, on this item? Okay, being none, we're gonna move on to um, our Disaster Council member roundtable. This is an opportunity any Disaster Council member can make an announcement, um, share information. Do we have anyone? Yes. Good, good morning, everyone. Kate Howard from DHR. I just wanted to remind um, city departments that DHR will be conducting a disaster service worker test um, of the alert system uh, on April 18th. Um, it's the request I would have of you is to encourage your employees to update their contact information, in particular their cell phone information or uh, an email address, so that we're able to both reach them um, during the test, and once they get that um, notification on their uh, email or, or cell phone, that they then respond as the alert directs them to. So not only do we know they got it, but also that they are um, responding to us inbound. Um, happy to report on the success of that at our next meeting. Thanks, Kate. Chief? Good afternoon, everyone. Joanne Hayes-White, San Francisco Fire Chief, for 30 more days, and that's the reason for my comment. I did want to uh, acknowledge this is my last Disaster Council meeting, and uh, it's been an honor and privilege to serve in the San Francisco Fire Department. I'm now in my 30th year, 15th year chief. Um, this Disaster Council is essential, as uh, the Chief of Staff said, and um, what I've seen over my career is a much greater collaboration between agencies uh, under the umbrella of the Department of Emergency Management. Uh, I know that that will continue. Uh, and I've been privileged to serve uh, under all the mayors, Mayor Newsom, now our governor, Mayor Lee for a brief time, Mayor Farrell, and now with Mayor Breed, and all have been uh, very supportive and emphatic that public safety 
and disaster preparedness be part of our everyday discussion. So uh, I know this group will continue on, and uh, I wish you, everyone the best. Thank you. Thanks, Chief. We're going to miss you. Uh, so do we have any public comment? Uh, we can offer public comment on any items not on the agenda at this time. Nancy Werfel, again, speaking on items that are not on the agenda. After over 100 years of success, successfully serving to protect San Francisco from catastrophic fires, our city's unique tradition of having two independent pipeline and hydrant systems is about to be abandoned on the west side of the city. The SFPUC is not planning on expanding the original auxiliary water supply system into the Richmond and Sunset districts as we were always promised. Instead, they are promoting a single pipeline and hydrant water system that can be used to provide both treated potable water for human uses and non-potable water for firefighting through the same pipeline. After the 1906 earthquake and fire, it was clear that the city must have two separate water delivery systems, with one just to fight large fires with salt water, thus providing a backup to the domestic water delivery pipes. Access to unlimited salt water, which is immediately available, is the key to suppressing fires. The SFPUC's plan is seriously flawed for the following reasons. It eliminates the dual pipeline system to fight fires. It does not have access to unlimited supplies of water immediately available to suppress multiple simultaneous post-earthquake conflagrations. It does not extend to all the unprotected neighborhoods in the western and southern portions of the city, thus placing lives and property in danger well into the future. It creates contamination of our drinking water pipes if the water from Lake Merced is pumped into the two sunset transmission lines to help fight fires. Miles of these polluted pipes must then be flushed out with unknown volumes of clean drinking water before returning it to domestic uses. Please remember that this PUC plan is for a dual-purpose single pipeline, which is the only way firefighters will access continuously available water on the west side. After an earthquake, the city will need to conserve potable water for human use, not required to flush pipe. Even when the $4.8 billion upgrade to strengthen the system delivering water from Hetch Hetchy to the city, with that, no one can guarantee that these pipelines will be intact after a seismic event. I remind you that the Moccasin Dam was unexpectedly damaged after a spring rain a year ago and is still being repaired. So, breaks do happen. The council must develop a plan for any emergency. You have not developed a plan to address the, all the problems the PUC brings to firefighting uh, issues and to preserving locally stored water. Please put this item on your next meeting's agenda. Thank you. Okay, thank you everyone. Our next scheduled meeting. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. My name is Dick Morton. This week, uh, the Chronicle reported that the USGS issued a report saying that California is in an earthquake drought. 1800 to 1918, ground ruptures, did, there was a plethora of ground ruptures. We haven't had anything similar to that 
subsequent to 1918. They don't count Loma Prieta as being a major ground rupture. So we're in this hiatus between significant quakes. Are we being complacent in only planning for mild earthquakes that we experience like Loma Prieta? There are 15 non-auxiliary water supply system neighborhoods in this city involving 370,000 people. There's also lack of 140,000 housing units plus public facilities, community facilities, businesses have no protection. They have not had any protection since Loma Prieta 30 years ago. We also have to take into account how many lives will be lost and how many injuries will be sustained by residents and visitors in those neighborhoods. Don't these non-AWSS neighborhoods deserve attention and support? Set Supervisor Marr uh, sent an email to me recently about the bond capacity has been increased by two point, from 2.5 billion to 2.7 billion, around 200 million dollars. The proposed capital plan does not have expansion of AWSS into these vulnerable neighborhoods. Disaster can be avoided. Will you, 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 you act? Thank you. Do we have any further public comment on this item? Seeing none, I thank you all for being here, and I will see you on June 21st, which is our next scheduled meeting. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. SFGovTV, San Francisco.